Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We're recording. Obligatory. Mm. Sip of tea. One, two. One, two. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light? <clears throat> Hello, welcome to episode 15 of Politics on the Couch, the podcast that settles frayed political nerves on a reassuring fleecy blanket of psychological analysis. That's the plan, at least. Thank you to everyone who's been listening and sharing past episodes while we've been on a short break. If you're a new listener, welcome. Thanks for dropping by. Look, we get that there are a lot of podcasts out there, so we appreciate you making the time to listen to this one. It's a tough time. It's a tough time of year. It's a tough time in general. So I hope you're finding the support you need. And if you're feeling isolated or anxious about the general state of things, I hope there is some modest comfort available in the solidarity of common bewilderment. We're all trying to make sense of it. We're working it out as we go along. And that's partly, at least, what this episode is about. A feeling of disorientation, uncertainty, when it can seem as if the whole world is a hostile environment. The appeal of Slick theories, universal narratives that seem to make sense of everything, but make sense of it by organising it into a conspiracy. And we've got a guest who is very well qualified to help me unpick that process. I've known Imran Ahmed for quite a few years now. He's a super smart guy. He's studied and worked in an impressive range of fields, medicine, finance, politics. And now he is helping lead the cleanup operation against toxic spills of misinformation online. Imran is the founder and chief executive of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, an excellent organisation that provides resources, research and advice to support the forces of truth and fact on the digital front line. I wanted to speak to Imran now because he's been looking in particular at the anti-vax phenomenon and developing strategies to empower science and add some wattage to the bulbs of enlightenment when we really need people to feel safe and comfortable with vaccination programmes. And a lot of them really don't. Also, I like Imran, so I wanted to catch up with him. And he kindly agreed to let me record the conversation and turn it into a podcast. Thanks, Imran. Now, we mentioned a couple of his research reports in the chat. Uh, There'll be links to those in the show notes. For a bit of context, Imran now lives in Washington, D.C. And we spoke at about half past 12 his time on Wednesday, the 20th of January. So that's about half an hour after the official end of Donald Trump's presidency and the official start of Joe Biden's. Uh, And there were some strong feelings in the background, sloshing around uh, when we recorded this. We tried to keep a lid on that, at least for the recorded part of the conversation. But I did kick off by asking Imran about his place on the front line of some pretty extreme events in the past few weeks. I think the first time I've cried in about a year was this weekend when I was thinking of Ashley Babbitt and I was thinking of a person who is a veteran who voted for Obama in the last cycle and then over a very short period of time was drip fed misinformation to the point where she had to be shot and killed to prevent the storming of the chamber um, and the potential loss of life of dozens of uh, of 
elected politicians. And I, I just think how evil it is that this sort of proselytization, misinformation is spread so easily, so cost free by these actors on in digital spaces and how the cost is borne by her. The thing that I find really hard to grapple with, which is the simultaneous extreme seriousness of it. I mean, we're talking about actual Nazis in some cases and the the manifest absurdity of it and, and the sense that, I mean, watching the, the capital, the people who actually stormed the capital, that crowd on the periphery of it, it just looked like people kind of milling around at sort of Disney World. They were like sort of MAGA Disneyland, just looking for a snack and a ride. Uh, and yet, obviously, what was going on was was hugely sinister. And it's quite difficult in a way to process this transition from, uh, you know, sort of semi-comic memes and stuff that, I'm not going to say it's harmless, but it's quite easy to see it as as marginal and effectively harmless in some respects. And then very obviously, as you say, it's not. It, it's it's it, a manifestation of, of fascism. So tactically, this is something that um, far-right figures have written about in the past. So in Don't Feed the Trolls, we mentioned Andrew Anglin's guide, a playbook for white supremacists. And in it, he says, use humour because it helps both to uh, to, to, to get people to spread the, the misinformation and to spread the seed of the idea that we're trying to spread. Um, but also it gives us plausible deniability. Um, we can just say we're just taking the mickey. And, and, and that's I, I, the, the way that I describe the way that misinformation is spread through memes is think of a fruit. A fruit's uh, this kind of flashy, tasty exterior. But actually, from the plant's perspective, the only thing that it actually wants to distribute is the seed. Um, so it's this kind of like delicious exterior that you 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 know you want to proffer around, but actually, it's the seed of the idea that underpins it. It's the misinformation at the heart of it. It's the sentiment, the feeling, the faith that the, it, it seeks to engender. That is the real. Uh, that is the real intent. It suggests. I mean, that is an evolutionary function, and in a way. That's a sort of one of the evolved responses of extremism and fascism uh, or, or, and radicalism, you know, extremism of all kinds, that because that we had the sort of 20th century experience and culturally we feel a lot of people think we ought to have been inoculated against that kind of extreme politics and every popular cultural representation that we can think of that we were growing up with all had the Nazis as the bad guys, you know, so we know what that's supposed to look like. And so in a way... The, the lulls concept, the idea that it's all just a bit of a joke, is a, quite a clever sort of psychological evolutionary mechanism to get that past our immune system. In the same way that the swastika was appropriated from Hindu uh, symbology as a, you know as a symbol that that people wouldn't have taken as being something terrifying and that would signify to us today extreme terror and death. Um, Pepe the frog is a frog, uh, and He's, I suppose, quite cute if you like those things. Um, and but the, yes, the point of it is that it is a signifier. It's a symbol that says, "I'm with you." And we now know what "I'm with you" means. "I'm with you" means I am willing to use extraordinary levels of hate and violence uh, towards those that aren't like me. Now, I want to come back to the the, the hate and the political extremism in a bit because you know, one of the reasons we, we got talking the other week was about uh, actually misinformation around vaccination uh, and it, I, I read your most recent report on the different sort of the typology of anti-vax ideas and the messages they want to communicate and how the techniques are very much the same but be quite interested to know because I think a lot of people listening to this will 
that they'll believe in science uh, and they will understand that vaccines work and are a good thing and that therefore anti-vax messages are dangerous and that's you know we don't necessarily need to sell that i think right now but people might not think understand what the connection is with hatred you know that you're in the business of countering digital hate uh, isn't it a, is it a bit of a digression to go and start talking about trying to spread good messages about science the reason why we started looking at vaccines and it's driven partly by actual the, the science of misinformation and hate and sentiments around uh, around in particular a pandemic, but also the contingent circumstances that in February last year, while I was going around the United States, I was in Washington state and I, I got very ill and I told my team and they went, you've got COVID. And I said, how do you know that? And they went, because the, the forums that they'd been tracking in Spokane, Washington, which is the, the center for the base, a, a neo-Nazi uh, white supremacist terrorist group, uh, that they said that they were full of people talking about using COVID as a biological weapon. So we started thinking, well, is coronavirus being instrumentalized by the bad guys? And if it is, how? And we saw vast amounts of disinformation flowing about coronavirus. Myself, I mean, we, we thought, well, actually, this is something that no one's looking at, so we should. And we were very early to the, to the cause, to looking at COVID and its, its potential use by uh, extremist actors. But what we rapidly realized was that they understood what we did, which is that disease and xenophobia are intimately linked. There's, there's, there's a very simple reason that a moral foundation, a sort of evolutionary psychological trait in human beings, disgust sensitivity, is linked to xenophobia, to in-out-group sentiment. And that's driven partly, you know, so you can see the social psychology of Michael Bank-Peterson on that, or you could look at the the work of neuroendocrinologists like Robert Sapolsky, who I remember talking to about this in in March, who said, yeah, well, that's because they're co-located in the insular cortex, in the sort of limbic system of the brain. So that these two bits, which actually tell you, don't go near that person because there's something funny about them, because they might be ill. Uh, they're intimately interlinked. And we, you know, we, we realized that this could create a perfect storm, that if they understood this connection and if they understood that weaponizing COVID could be a very powerful way to recruit hate actors. OK, sorry, can I just backtrack a bit? Because you said lots of really, really interesting things there. And I need to unpack some of them. So we've come across this idea on the podcast before that the sort of social immune system, the, the, the idea that when people are afraid that there's a nasty bug around or, or they become more wary of of unfamiliar things and others and that becomes an agent for the you know, propagation culturally of, of more nationalistic more xenophobic ideas uh, and but I hadn't fully appreciated the extent to which that's actually hardwired into the brain chemistry but when you say weaponizing covid i mean it sounds almost as if you know using there's a difference between biological weapons using the virus to harm people or weaponizing the all the complex emotions around covid as a way of recruiting people to far-right causes and and that's that second thing that you're talking about it's not basically trying to kill people with a disease it's using the agency of people generally being confused and disoriented and that that the vulnerability that instills in them to then seed radical nationalistic ideas in their minds is that right 
So, I mean, that's precisely it. But also, I mean, the former as well as the latter. So we I mean, we initially saw people literally saying, catch COVID and, and cough on a black person, go to a bus stop full of black people and, and cough on them. But also what we saw was this anxiety, this complete sense of disconnection, of anxi- of epistemic anxiety. So not just not, not understanding what's true or not, but not knowing who on earth can tell you what's true or not. In this point where the scientific method is still catching up with, with a novel disease that's emerged, they took advantage of that moment. And the the funny thing is that what we've always argued at CCDH is that disinformation networks, whether they seek to inculcate identity-based hate or to counter climate change, to beat back vaccines or coronavirus, that all of them use a common architecture in the way that they proselytize their information, but also the tactics that they use and the underlying psychology that they're seeking to take advantage of. And that in, on, in digital spaces, they're given particular ability to do so because of the nature of how those platforms are organized and the fact that they can act with impunity there. Okay, well, you said just yet the words underlying psychology, which on this podcast, obviously, is something I really want to now latch onto because, I mean, my, my guess, my crude understanding of it would be that uh, you're in an anxious situation and the world seems threatening in some way. And as you say, there's there's an absence of clarity and purpose and, and a route out of it. And then someone comes along and says, but it's OK, this isn't a random scatterplot of information. We can join the dots and it makes this nice, coherent picture. And suddenly the world makes sense. And it's that sort of dots joining uh, into a kind of conspiratorial narrative that gives people comfort and is balm to their anxieties. Is, is that is that right? Yeah. So conspiracy theories are highly correlated with epistemic anxiety. When people feel this anxiety about not just what's true or not, but how to find out, that's when they're most vulnerable to to believing a to, to, to falling for a conspiracy theory. And not just that, because conspiracy theories always contain at their core a non-falsifiable core. So they contain an assertion of faith, not fact, because they don't, you know, they are fundamentally about a leap of faith. They, they don't ever sate that epistemic anxiety. So people go down a rabbit hole. They look for more and more and more and more conspiracy theories. And so when you say is- non-falsifiable cause, so in the case of, uh, sort of COVID and vaccine stuff, it would be, you know, that, what would be the, an assertion that someone who wants me to doubt the efficacy of the vaccine, uh, and let's say I'm vulnerable to that and I'm susceptible to that message, what would you seed in my sort of narrative space that I would latch onto that is non-falsifiable that I think, yeah, hang on a second, actually that has a ring of truth and then no one can chip away at it in practice. I'll give you two examples. And the one that I like pulling out because it's funny is prove to me that Bill Gates isn't a lizard um, and that there isn't a conspiracy of lizards to cover up the fact that he is a lizard. Uh, The second one is um, the assertion that you cannot be sure that the vaccine won't harm a fetus uh, if you're pregnant. So one of the ones that we're seeing going around at the moment is about fertility. uh, And that's particularly powerful because it's targeted at young women and at at families. And that one there, because because it hasn't been been, uh, extensively tested on pregnant women, so the uh, warning labels say um, hasn't been tested on pregnant women and therefore we can't be sure as, as to what the results would be people are being told that means it will harm your pregnant child. Right. And this leads to that very important point I think you just made about, you know, things being faith propositions, because ultimately I think a lot of self-styled rationalists who think they're resistant to this stuff believe, you know, and I'm, 
probably guilty of this as well, believe that we have facts and understanding and science on our side. And then there's all these crazy people who don't believe in the science. But actually, at a certain level, the science gets complicated enough that it's actually a faith proposition to, to go along with the authority figures who are telling you this science is good. Don't worry. We've, we've tested this properly. So, you know, and I'm not indulging the conspiracy theory here. I'm just saying if I'm honest with myself, I just think my faith in the institutions, whether it's pharmaceutical companies or democratic governments that are offering me this vaccine is justified. And the paranoid, crazy people's faith in the lizard analysis isn't and is mad. But they are sort of both faith propositions at some level. You're right. This is a, it's a question of competing authorities because no one really, I mean, you know, there's very, very few people that fully understand in the population that would fully understand exactly how the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine work. That's you know that's part of the reason that they're they're so they're, they're they're likely to win the Nobel Prize for medicine. They are incredible discoveries. They are feats of human ingenuity that are truly special because it took great great ingenuity and teamwork to to put them together. So yes, very very few people fully understand them, and that's why we have a rigorous testing uh, method. It's why we have the scientific method. It's why things are published. It's why things are peer reviewed. It's why why we have the scientific method as it exists and why. Um, and why we trust it is because we know that, that method is adhered to with great diligence by scientists. But culturally, we still need enough people to be walking around with a, a sort of a bedrock of confidence in that whole apparatus, that superstructure that makes this good information so that when a new bit of information lands, it lands on the right fertile terrain. And it, it seems to me that we've massively underestimated we've become hugely complacent about the number of people who literally either don't know that superstructure is there or who have got such a corroded sense of confidence in all authority that the crazy lizard theory propagating guy on the internet has the same level of, of authority to lots of people that a senior medical officer in this country has to me and, and I'm interested in in what you can do as it were, to reconstruct confidence in the minds of people who are at that level of corroded confidence. We need to be watching authorities. We need to be um, able to criticise them. And many of them have come in for right for righteous criticism in the, in the past few years, decades. But the question is, is the person that's trying to sell you nebulised hydrogen peroxide, which is inhaled bleach, a, a more compelling authority to you as someone who conveys the truth about... Um, or a scientifically rigorously um, established truth about what coronavirus is and how we can deal with it. It certainly doesn't help, but it's the president of the United States. And let's just, we can pause for another moment to give thanks that he is no longer, that man is no longer the president of the United States. But, but it's interesting because, I mean, I came across this earlier today, actually, this idea that there is a spectrum of scepticism. And at some point, in order to understand why people would just reject the science, you you do need to, or do you need to, it's a question really, acknowledge the, the basis for some scepticism. So some communities, uh, particularly minority communities, are, are profoundly suspicious of pharmaceutical companies because of things that have been done in the developing world. Uh, and you know, there is a whole... You know, particularly on the political left, there's a whole apparatus of argument that talks about big pharma. Uh, and, you know, a Labour MP was talking about it the other day in those terms. And these aren't people who reject the vaccine, but they are talking about the, pharma, the private sector pharmaceutical industry in ways that shade into the conspiratorial view of what the private sector in the pharmaceutical industry is. And I suppose what I'm asking is, 
how helpful or unhelpful is it to say, yes, I get that you don't like this sector and this industry, but trust me on this one, you've got to do what they say. Or is that, do you just literally try and leap over that whole objection? No, I think that the job of, of bolstering faith and authorities is down to them and their ability to to convey, to convey behave in a way that, that means that they aren't just led because they are authorities. They, they lead because they because they deserve to be listened to. And that, that's a fundamental thing about strengthening institutions. Our concern at the centre is how, that, how that's weaponized by people seeking to create authority for themselves. So this is about the replacement of elites with new elites. Let me give you an example, like the, the Tuskegee experiments conducted in the early 20th century in African-Americans. We saw Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's a notorious um, anti-vaccine advocate, uh, in the United States, where he was saying that black boys should be very cautious about taking the vaccine because there's a higher rate of uh, malignant effects uh, on black boys. He also has talked about the Tuskegee experiments and what they're trying to just ex- uh, just unpack what that is in case people aren't familiar with that case, which is obviously which has, has crossed over the Atlantic, by the way, and is, is part of the narrative very much in, in the UK as well now. The US government literally testing out what happens in advanced cases of syphilis on African-American people using them as test subjects. Uh, I mean, it was uh, an, an atrocity in the early 20th century. And, um, but eliding all of that together into one great big mess and, and then saying that that's why you can't trust the coronavirus vaccine, a vaccine that's been developed by scientists all over the world, approved by governments that agree on pretty much nothing else apart from this vaccine is our best hope to defeat and contain coronavirus then it is an extraordinary leap of faith to go from Tuskegee to you shouldn't take the coronavirus vaccine because it will harm you. And that's the kind of leap of faith that we're talking about. And they're very, very difficult to they're very difficult to deal with. I mean our argument has been that that conspiracy theories are compelling because they they fill gaps in people's feeling and understanding of what's going on in the world around them and how they can deal with it and that it's and we know from the research it's very difficult to walk someone back over a leap of faith which is why part of what we do is 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 suggest that the best way to stop someone being infected with misinformation is actually to reduce the r0 to prevent that being seen in the first instance which is to target those small coterie of people who we know are very very active in spreading misinformation, and they say, I mean, I mean Raf, the, the the thing that I th- find very interesting is that we've and we've identified an anti-vax industry, a very very small number of people who are responsible for the for the for the majority of the biomass of of BS out there, and that you know we we found fifty nine million uh, followers of anti-vax uh, individuals and groups across the US and UK. We found that half of those people were following just ten individuals, and those individuals have access to platforms that give them unprecedented reach, and they benefit from the algorithmic amplification that's inherent to those platforms as well. So millions of people are seeing misinformation that is designed to be as difficult to deprogram as possible and argue against as possible. And that's undermining a biological national security issue for us. So the, the, the question is, is this the moment to sit to sit around talking about epistemic authorities? Or is this the moment to say, well, look, we have a serious problem with BS in our society. Um, that's dividing and causing, and no one can argue after 2020 that, that, that misinformation does not have a real life cost, given... COVID misinformation, anti-vaccine misinformation, extremist misinformation, and, and the misinformation that underpins the spread of identity-based hate, which we saw, you know, it, it sort of emerge into a conflagration at the Capitol just a few days ago. In your Don't Feed the Trolls report, which I, I found fascinating, that the temptation to say 
behold this appallingly stupid thing, here's why it's wrong, is very, very strong. That in itself is a psychological impulse. You see someone being wrong on the internet and you want to correct them, or if you've been attacked, uh, you want to defend yourself or, or whatever it is. The, the need to, as it were, put the bad thing in the stocks and pillory it yourself is, as I understand it from your report, fundamentally counterproductive. All you are doing is creating some additional space, carving out just another space where the bad information, where the rotten fruit gets to spread the mould to some other fruit somewhere. Is that, is that broadly speaking right? So overuse the analogy. And that's precisely why they target public figures with misinformation in a, in a vicious way. So look, this is the, this is the playbook for the, for, the, for, the, for the trolls. What they do is they've got 50 followers, you've got 50,000 followers. What they do is they call you a bad name and they say something really, really stupid, but that, that encapsulates or, or contains the seed of misinformation that they seek to plant. Now, if they're just shouting at you, no one can see them apart from their 50 followers and you. If you then engage with them, you pull them into 50,000 followers and they're able to, all of them are able to see it. The measure for success in a digital space is how many retweets and shares do you get? But once you start, so you literally measure the success as the public figure, as the number of retweets that you get of your tweet, which is maybe having a go at them. But all you're doing is presenting information that's designed to be extremely compelling to those who are in a, in a moment of epistemic anxiety or in a moment of anxiety of a different kind that, that makes them vulnerable in that moment to misinformation. You're exposing them to it. And it's, it's incredibly counterproductive. Now, what that's done is it's made misinformation more visible in our society. And because of a, a natural bias that we have, frequency bias, the more that we see something, the more that we think it's normal. And I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's two ways of arguing against it. First is that that's a really, really counterproductive and silly thing to do um, in terms of the public figures who engage with uh, small follower hate actors and try and and, and use it as a form of and the, the, the second argument, which is that it's just it's just a form of virtue signaling. And virtue signaling is we, the reason why we virtue signal as a species is because it confers benefits on us. So it actually helps to increase our standing with the community that we seek to increase our, our, our standing with. But actually, virtue signaling has a cost in digital environments. And that cost is that you spread misinformation. So you spread the disease by conferring upon yourself some benefit. Now, I'm not sure that everyone knows that, that, you know, that, that actually quote tweeting a bad guy and saying, look at this idiot is actually an incredibly costly thing to do. And uh, ultimately is, is so solipsistic as to, be, uh, as, to, as to actually be immoral. That's a pretty strong statement. I mean, you're talking about, it's a very hard thing to resist, I'm sure. I mean, I don't do it anymore because I try and stay the hell off social media often or certainly whenever anyone attacks me, I just mute and block like crazy now. But I've sort of learned the hard way. And certainly I was guilty, you know, in the early years, I remember of, of when Jeremy Corbyn first became leader of the Labour Party and I used to engage in arguments and fights with people. And I, again, I realised I was being drawn into, into this this process, but you're, you're, you're having to go against the grain of another psychological impulse, which is when you've in your head got the perfect rebuttal for something that you see as false, you've, you, I think you have to believe at some level that presenting that argument or information the right way will somehow turn a light on in someone else's head and they will be converted. And the difficult thing I think for people to to grasp is there is no converting someone when they have crossed over into the sort of aggressive misinformation space. And not only will they not be converted, but your attempt to convert them 
confirms that you are one of the bad people who's trying to deceive them. There's, there you, it will never happen. By experience, you've understood what we understand to be true through, you know, tracking the research and the and and the the, the science on this, which is that if you try and pres- present the perfect uh, argument against something, if someone is psychologically predisposed to accepting the hate actors argument or the misinformation actors argument, then you're going to lose. And let's say one in 100 of your 50,000 followers isn't persuaded by you and is persuaded by the other person. You've just increased their audience from 50 to 500. And that's a terrible thing to do. It's a, you know, it's, it, this is about the mathematical increase in the amount of misinformation out there and the number of people who are being misinformed and how that spreads at a phenomenal rate such that we now see misinformation like anti-vax uh, misinformation uh, and the number of people who are vaccine hesitant rising at a rate that we 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 hadn't seen before and let me be and let me be really clear that vaccine hesitancy is not an irreversible condition vaccine because quite often what the other side is trying to do is not actually sell a belief system but a doubt system and they're trying to dissuade you from taking a decision that is based on your understanding of of who to listen to what the science is etc cetera, etc cetera. they're trying to their, their, their strategy is to, to to raise which is why they pose it in the form of questions most often but it's to raise sufficient doubt that you don't take an action that would actually be beneficial for you so the that there is an asymmetry in the job that has to be done. And the other side are very, very good at planting as many seeds of doubt as they can in people's minds, such that they don't, that that they start to either mistrust or not have any confidence at all in what's true and what's not. And of course, that makes them more vulnerable then to conspiracism. All you need to do is point to the inherent uncertainty of human experience and use that as the pivot to say, and therefore, how can you be sure that these authority figures who you are already primed to mistrust slightly aren't lying to you? Uh, and that is a much easier sell, in a sense, than someone who comes along and says, I want to counter this misinformation, who says, I promise you, I've been knocking around the establishment for years. I know these people. They're my friends. You can trust them. That's literally the worst argument in the history of politics. Um, so, yeah, as you say, that asymmetry is, is very important, that it's quite difficult to make the case for having confidence in authority when you also, as a good rationalist, want to accept the uncertainty. Here's where this starts to become really problematic. This tension, this constant discourse on what's true, what's not, is amazingly useful when it comes to, for example, politics or you know, discussion of, of opinion, of what conclusion you come to, uh, in, in, uh, what political conclusions you come to. But unfortunately, society still needs to have a corpus of facts that we can accept unless if we want to have a society in itself. Imagine at school if you knew that 5% of the information your teacher told you would actually be deliberately misleading. Or if you had a debate over whether or not 2 plus 2 equals 4. Like, there, isn't, there aren't actually two opinions on that. There, there, is, there has to be certain certainties. If we are to have, I and mean, ironically, the technology that we all are relying on to listen to this right now and that we're using to communicate right now, there are scientific certainties and facts and mathematical proofs and we as we start to turn those into political playthings of misinformation spreading in these platforms that has changed the way that our politics works as well such that and you were wrong when you said that it was Donald Trump that said about the nebulization of bleach he took that from an internet from an from an internet anti-vaxxer 
And it was the internet anti-vaxxer that, that built an audience for it. And Donald Trump thought to himself, well, you know what? If I say that I'm the guy who believes that maybe bleach is, is one solution, that actually gives a lot of people who are thinking, well, actually, he's the only one who's speaking the truth. And that's dangerous. That's the politicization and the, 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 the fundamental undermining of science, of the facts that we need to hold to be true, to have the ability to have a society as we do. I mean, I, I completely agree. And, you know, a lot of us have grappled with this for quite a long time, this, you know, the, the epistemological crisis that is there is no common pool of facts. And uh, and I think uh, you know, Barack Obama said it very well after the, you know, when when Trump first refused to uh, accept a transition or, or acknowledge the, the Biden victory that, you know, if you don't have uh, some agreed discourse of what is true and what is false, you, you can't organise a, a democracy. And that's easy to assert. Uh, and then you have situations where the fact base, particularly in science, does itself change at a rate that you can't keep up with. So there's this example of the the two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, where you really wanted people to just accept the government's view that it's you're OK with just the first one and waiting 12 weeks. Ad admittedly, it's a bit off label, but trust us, it's fine. Uh, and so everyone says, OK, this is now the, 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 the functional truth, the pragmatic truth based on science for this precise moment. And already there's science coming out, at least from one data set in Israel, that maybe that wasn't true and we might have to row back on that. And that just makes this whole business of saying there is, there's team facts and team truth and team crazy who you can ignore. That, that makes it very hard to police that line when the facts change as fast as they do. And, and you know, part of the reason that we, that that CCDH exists is because we venerate the scientific method. And the scientific method says that when the evidence emerges, you you react to it. So paradigms shift over time, that we are understanding the scientific conclusions that we come to based on the fact emerge over time. And that's precisely how the scientific method works. That's it working in practice. And that's a that's actually an example of the strength of the scientific method, because it's based on the evidence as we see it rather than the assertion of misinformation because someone believes it's in their interest. This is the difference between this is the difference between truth and, and what Harry Frankfurt called bullshit. Yeah, but I'm gonna say something, you know, potentially challenging to that, which I find challenging personally, which is there is, I believe, possibly a fundamental tension, a disjunction between the scientific method and the political method, because no politician ever says, I've got this brilliant policy, I'm going to introduce it in a pilot tested somewhere, and it might completely fail and not work, and it'll cost £15 million. But if it doesn't work, we'll just scrap it and do a completely different policy, maybe the opposition are right. That's just not an available... I mean, in an ideal world, maybe politicians would say that. Maybe the Treasury would say, we're going to drop a few billion on this thing, and we're going to hope it works, but we're going to be led by the evidence if it doesn't, we'll scrap it. Uh, and so there are so many political incentives, emotional, cognitive incentives to to do the opposite of the scientific method, which is to look for reasons why you're succeeding, not stress test the reasons why you might be failing. Sci scientists should welcome failure because it adds to their information base. Politicians will never do that. Well, I, I mean, the irony is that they did do that over the vaccine. As you, as you well know, they bought options on various different types of vaccines, hoping that one of them would be the most effective. And Funny enough, when one of them was more effective than the other, we all sort of turned around and went, well, you should have bought the other other one. Well, I think it's really important to be fair here that politicians can get it right. And I think when it came to the vaccine, crumbs, they definitely got that decision right. It was an incredibly brave one to do because billions were spent um, and the manufacturing capacity was built. Think of what, what 
um, some of the, the the funders of COVAX, the coronavirus vaccine program, internationally were were up to. They were building the manufacturing capacity, not just buying options, but building them actually building the manufacturing capacity for all the different types of vaccines, even though some of them have failed or have not been as effective. That was a that I mean the. Coronavirus vaccine has, in so many respects, been absolutely the best of politics, the best of science, and the best of uh, best of humankind. That's a fantastically optimistic note, which is good because that's we always try in this podcast to be a little bit optimistic. I mean, do you sense in your work that there is a kind of learning moment in this? That somehow the, you know, as you say, that. You know, having the scientists stand up alongside the politicians and say, look, this is what you've got to do, or, okay, that didn't work, now we're going to try this. And there is, you know, we've certainly become a lot more literate in reading graphs with logarithmic scales on them, which is, well, not everyone's grasped that, but it's there's probably more people understand that than did a year ago. Uh, and so, you know, you were sounding quite pessimistic a moment ago about the scale of misinformation, but is, isn't there also just a tsunami of science actually washing away some of the residue of just plain ignorance and unscientific thinking. 2020 has clarified for everyone that we have a problem with misinformation. I mean, President Biden's just given his inaugural uh, a few minutes ago, and he said we must reject the culture in which facts are manipulated and even manufactured. Um, and that's because 2020 proved to us, whether it came to COVID misinformation or vaccine misinformation or hatred or extremism, that there is a real life offline cost for online misinformation. And you can see as well that there is a, a growing focus and a growing understanding that, that that when you take your information from spaces that are that are unregulated and run to no rules, that there is no scientific method applied to the information that you see on social media. There's no peer review. There's no there's no certainty that it's not being manufactured by someone for, mal for malignant intent, that that is drinking from potentially spoiled waters. I find that very interesting as well, because, again, you know, I, I, I'm sold on the hard rationalism and the scientific method. But I also there's a part of me coming from a journalistic background that sort of understands or is sensitive to actually how much aesthetics and presentation and design there is in this stuff and information. And the reality is, you know, and. There's a lot of evolutionary science that would say uh, yeah, a pretty picture uh, and a well-sold meme that makes you laugh, as we were discussing earlier, is just going to be much more effective than a spreadsheet that contains the facts. And you know, for a lot of people, I think of a certain generation, you have one set of aesthetic presumptions of what looks like good information. And I see a lot of the, the junk flying around on Facebook. And I think, well, obviously that looks like trash information. Just the font alone tells me this is bullshit. Uh, but that's a terrible metric. And yet somehow you can't ignore that all those aspects of it, that there's something encoded in what stuff looks like that signals to people whether it's true or not. And how do you deal with that? Well, it, look, this is this is an eternal battle. Look, the different the, the the battle between the enlightenment, between science and faith, and and irrationalism, and that that that's not a new battle. The enlightenment, the the victory of the enlightenment, is all about that. And of course, the other side is sexier. It, you know, the the I'm not to sort of be glib about it, but the Nazis did have a bloody good dress sense um, Hugo Boss suits. Yeah, don't worry. We could. I think. I think it was safe to say. This podcast recognises that the Nazis were the bad guys. You're you're in safe territory there. So, but the you know, it's absolutely scientists do not have the, the whip hand in those environments. And the other side are very good at presenting their information, the compelling and 
a compelling and attractive way. Um, misinformation is often more attractive. And, and what we've talked about today is, is the way that sometimes to our minds, misinformation is an incredibly attractive thing to do because it fills up, it, 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 it purports to fill a hole that we, we think we need filled. But at the same time, I, you know, I know that in the work that we do, which is to, we do two bits of work, which is first of all, to bolster our side. So we talked to, I mean, last night, I was talking to California Medical Association and a whole bunch of doctors about how they can be more effective in, 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 in putting out information about vaccines. And at the same time, yesterday, what I was doing was talking to, uh, well, campaigning against social media executives that, that, that have done so little to actually remove misinformation from their platforms. Misinformation that they know is produced by a calculated, sophisticated and incredibly effective industry of, of, of anti-vaxxers. Well, there's a commercial tension there, though, isn't there? I mean, I'm, I'm, I recognise, obviously, that Facebook and Twitter also have a have some kind of commercial incentive not to be seen as the engines of the destruction of Western civilization. But, you know, they'll play the odds a bit, won't they? I mean, ultimately, it's, it's all traffic to them at the end of the day. I mean, Twitter silenced Trump after he had been comprehensively demonstrated to be a total loser and on the way out. And, you know, do we honestly think they would have made that decision as an ethical one if he'd won a second term? Of course they wouldn't. So, you know, and, and, and that, that's at the macro level. And then at the micro level, presumably, as well as all the more nefarious political agendas we were talking about, there are people who are as literally selling snake oil, cockamamie, bogus, homeopathic and the worst you know, even worse remedies, uh, who have lots of very good commercial incentives and will even be advertising. And so th these are, there's a whole ecosystem and economic system of falsehood uh, that is, is a separate issue almost to whether or not there is a, a nasty political agenda behind it. Yeah, look, my, my experience in studying this environment and campaigning in this environment for four years is that there are a lot of very, very clever and cute um, philosophical canards um, of sophistry that's deployed to protect the fact this is primarily about greed and laziness. And I think that 2021 is the year in which that ends because, I mean, first of all, I know that the legislation that protects social media companies from liability for the content that they publish uh, is likely to go, given that both Democrats and Republicans want it to go, and that the social media companies, when they went before the Senate Judiciary Committee before Christmas, said that it's likely to go as well, uh, that they think it should go. Um, but also because I think that, that that circumstances have proved that we cannot carry on as we are, because our world is becoming more brittle, more vociferous, uh, less able to sustain what is a, you know, let's let's not pretend that everything about democracy is rational there is there is a there is a there is an emotional spiritual core to democracy a values core to it which is really really precious and we are undermining it at a rapid rate by saying that actually um the spread of misinformation of lies that you are allowed to operate to no rules there have to be rules there have to be consequences for the kind of malignant behavior that we've seen and that's what we seek to 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 engender and that's um, this is going to be one of the last things I ask you because you've been very generous with your time. But going zooming in again on that, where we sort of started, which is the, what the what is it that misinformation conspiracy theory is animating in the mind of someone who's susceptible to it, the vulnerability that's being satisfied. And it occurs to me that that part of that is you feel there's almost a sense of 
of power that you get from thinking you are the target of the conspiracy because it means you are important. You're validated by your victimhood. If everyone's out to get you uh, and you're one of the few who understands what's going on, you know, you've taken the red pill and you see the matrix and no one else does, then it's a very good way of of pushing back against the existential void, which is you're just one citizen in a nation of millions and frankly, no one cares about you. And so what's the sort of the message strategy in a practical level that can tunnel underneath that and say, and, and give uh, some other sense of agency that will, that pushes back against that. I mean, how do you find the people who are vulnerable to that? And how do you, you, you feed that appetite with something more nutritious, I suppose is what I'm saying. It's true on so many levels. You think of Donald Trump and he was the ultimate loser's winner. You know, he was a loser and he was a loser who won against the massed forces against him. And of course, the culture of victimhood and the rhetoric of victimhood was really, really important to his popularity. But also when it comes to someone, let's take, for example, the the autism uh, vaccine link. What do you say to someone whose uh, child is autistic? Do you say that it's it's just the role of the genetic die is the role of 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 how it turned out or do you tell them that there's a reason for it and it's an incredibly compelling thing to do to fill that gap that emotional i mean we see this being weaponized all the time and we saw what wakefield in particular did and how pernicious that was and the reason why we rejected him and why we shunned him was because what he was doing was trying to give false hope and false explanations to people that needed love and care and needed to have the support of each other the support of each of us in society and the state and i think that that that's really I mean, again, speaking back to the inaugural today, Joe Biden said, sometimes we're called upon to ask for help. Sometimes we, sometimes we ask for help. Sometimes we're called upon to, to, to provide that help. Actually, this is about coming back from coronavirus, building back better, of having a society that's more cohesive, that's more decent, that's more loving to each other. I do think that these things matter. And the other side is making it more brittle, less tolerant and less loving. Um, this, is a, this is a battle for the soul of our societies. And misinformation is a and it has to be remembered that is a cynical calculated truly malignant malevolent thing to do what you've just said it reminds me of something uh, at one of the more effective politicians uh, who had pushed back against the far right threat in the UK in his constituency said the one of the few messages that really worked that got through to his sort of bnp voters on his patch you know when he, he, he if he tried to say you're wrong. It's not true. You know, the migration thing, it's not as bad as you think, or these are good people too. You, know, you, you shouldn't have these awful racist views. It didn't work and it bounced off people. But when he said, the BNP want you to have this problem, your anger, your frustration, your alienation, that's how they get power. So they're, they're selling you this problem they're not the solution. And I'm here to talk to you about how we can help you feel better or manage this, or let's talk about you know, your street, how we can improve it. But what you have to understand is that these people, you know, your impotence, your frustration, your rage are their product. But so that was the thing that at least got the people to keep their door open and carry on listening to what he was saying, because that they, they sort of got, they thought, oh, hang on. Yeah, these people, they like me being angry because if I'm not angry anymore, then where's their power? Uh, and, and that sort of, I think, is relevant in this context too. They prey on the frustration, the anger, the hate, 
that is in people's hearts and we seek to give them hope. It's a really, really simple thing. And, and there's a reason, and it sounds cliche and it sounds uh, glib, but it fundamentally is true that we succeed if they find themselves able to cope with the situation that the world has put them in. And they succeed, uh, the bad guys succeed if they keep them where they are. Because we have to end this now, which is a shame because I could obviously keep talking about this for a very long time, uh, well, like most things. Um, but, you know, you are at the front line of this stuff uh, and you, what I like about the stuff that you guys publish is it has a practical dimension. I mean, the, I talked about the Don't Feed the Trolls uh, report about which I learned a lot, some basic facts about do's and don'ts uh, and the, the anti-vax narratives and counter-narratives one is, is equally very good. So just for people listening to this who might well have someone turning up in their Facebook, in their WhatsApp group, who is a family member, a friend, someone they like, and they see this stuff and they think, I don't know how to tell them that what they're saying is dangerous or stupid or wrong without making it worse. Or what can we do? What are the tools that are available to the individual who think I want to be on the side of truth and epistemological rigor and I'm seeing agents of falsehood and corrosion up in my face book. What, what do they do? So and if it's true, which we, we know from, from huge amounts of evidence that frequency bias makes us feel that things are normal and therefore believable, and also that misinformation, as Heidi Larson at the Vaccine Confidence Project at the London School of Tropical Hygiene showed that one bit of misinformation can reduce vaccine intention quite significantly, then this is a battle of what's more visible. And so our recommendation when it comes to practical stuff is if you see misinformation, ignore it, first of all, don't engage with it. Second, block the person that's sending it so they can't have the chance to sort of to trigger your desire to engage with it again. Third thing is go and find some good information and go and engage with that instead. Literally give the whip hand, use the same tactic that they use, but do it to help good information succeed. Very few people go and retweet the NHS or go and retweet their local GP, um, but they might hate tweet, um, you know, a bad guy. Let's get into the habit of giving the whip hand to those who work on the side of science uh, and uh, and evidence-based rigour. That's a fantastic note to finish on. I think we should call it as a there and all go off and share some top quality, nutritious, healthy, crunchy, fibrous information that is going to go into the digestive system of the body politic uh, and lead to, oh no, hang on, that's going to lead to a kind of stool specimen metaphor. Raf, pull out of the metaphor, pull out of the metaphor. Anyway, it's going to make us very healthy uh, and strong and boost our immune system. Okay, that's, I've, I've rescued the metaphor. Um, Imran, I'm, I'm sorry about that bizarre biological uh, digression at the end there. I really appreciate uh, all your insight and this whole conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks, Raf. It was lovely speaking with you. And we'll leave it there. You can read the reports and more about the Centre for Countering Digital Hate at counterhate.com. Counterhate, all one word, .com. I'll be back with more Politics on the Couch soon. Thank you, as ever, producer Phil, for all the work that goes on out of earshot, getting this podcast to your headphones. And thank you, the listeners, for listening. Goodbye. 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.